Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Hello and thanks for joining us once again on the podcast known as Space Nuts where we focus on space, the astronomy, the cosmos, whatever. Uh, and as the long nuts. As... Sorry? <laughs> and who, the nuts. Who was that? Uh, my name's Andrew Dunkley, and with, with me as always is astronomer Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> Sorry I beat you to it. Oh, that's okay. Look, I, I, today could be a particularly horrible show <laughs> because I've, I'm in a radio station as we speak, and they've decided they're going to install air conditioning this morning, so... We it's might good. get a couple of hammer drills. Uh, we might have people falling through ceilings because this is an old building and I wouldn't like to be up there. And I know there are dead rats up there. And um, who knows what else? And there are at least three mobile phones within a bull's roar off me. So um, if they're not muted, anything could happen. So let's just press on regardless, Fred. And so. today we're going to talk about an air leak on the International Space Station, which sounds rather serious. But there's a sinister side to this, perhaps, with allegations of sabotage. Good grief. Um, and the Japanese are set um, to visit the 162173 Ryugu asteroid. I think that's how you pronounce it. it might be Ryugu. Uh, and they've... Um, they've um, yeah, they're pretty excited about that, as excited as Japanese can get, in fact. And um, following up on a uh, on the Perseid meteor shower, we've had a question, which opens the door to a, a whole new array of information about uh, meteor showers. So we'll get on to that. Uh, but first, Fred, this uh, rather shocking story of an air leak on the ISS, that's bad enough, but sabotage? Isn't it interesting? So uh, when this story broke last week, Andrew, um, it was being um, uh, sort of advertised as due to a micrometeorite impact. Mm -hmm. uh, micrometeorites, of course, are little bits of space dust. Uh, the, the reason why they're dangerous is because they travel so fast. Uh, so natural uh, space dust. Uh, in addition to that risk, uh, astronauts up there face the risk from space junk too, which we've talked about before many times. Uh, we've we've all seen that picture of um, you know a, a, a shard of glass missing from the windscreen of the space shuttle because of a fleck of paint that hit it at eight kilometres per second. No, it's just staggering, isn't it? So, so um, natural and artificially made space junk are, are an ongoing hazard with the International Space Station. And when that story broke last week um, about the leak in the International Space Station, that was what it was assumed to be. But further examination has indicated that this hole was not actually uh, caused by a micrometeorite. It was actually caused by a drill, um, that there is a hole drilled in the outer fabric of not the space station itself, 
but the Russian Soyuz module, which is docked with the space station. And, and in fact, uh, it's not even the, the um, you know, the, the, the manned capsule of the Soyuz module, the, the bit that brings uh, astronauts back to Earth, the, the re-entry module. It's something that we would probably call the service module. It's a, it's a module that doesn't have people living in it, but it is pressurized uh, and there is access to it. Uh, that uh, has a hole in it. And Ooh. the evidence is, uh, well, you, you know, people can clearly see when you examine a hole what's made it uh, in terms of the difference between a drill and, uh, and a, um, a micrometeorite. They have quite different structure uh, around the edge of the hole. But there's, there's a, a more of a smoking gun still with this. And that is that, um, you know, I'm sure, as I do, if you try and drill a hole in a piece of metal without putting a dint with a center punch in it to start with, mm. the drill just wanders all over the place. Oh, that's uh, what's happened. And leaves marks. And those marks are there. So uh, whoever's done this has just sort of poked a drill at the wall and started it going. And it's wandered off and, and marked the metal before it has actually uh, started to drill the hole. So are we so, assuming this happened on the ground before the thing was attached or are we talking somebody on board? Well, there's two options, either somebody doing it on the ground or somebody doing it on board. Wow. <laughs> uh, and, and we don't know the answer to that. Um, the, it, it is very interesting. I mean, um, you can bet your life we will find the answer, I'm sure, because this kind of thing uh, it pr prompts uh, detective work of the of the most intense kind, all of which at the moment, it has to be said, is being done by the Russians, because this is a Russian, you know, it's a piece of Russian property that's actually got the hole in it. Mm. Um, uh, it, it, uh, it is, um, it, it's possible uh, that it was a mistake that somebody made you know, on the ground when the when the spacecraft was being built, um, it may have been an error that was made and then sealed up, uh, and uh, just to basically cover it up. And then maybe uh, that ceiling broke away when it when it was um, uh, you know exposed to the vacuum of space. And uh, be, be, because the, the the fact was that we thought it was a micrometeorite. Um, so this leak uh, occurred relatively suddenly. It didn't. It, it, it wasn't something that had just, you know, built up over time. It occurred relatively suddenly, as though a micrometeorite had hit it. Uh, but if it was a piece of artificial sealant that had been put on it and had come away, then that would have the same the same effect. It was, of course, just to to, to reassure everybody. It was plugged very quickly. In fact, um, one of the uh, astronauts. Um, I think it was the German astronaut who's on board at the moment stuck his finger on it and that eventually blocked it up. He and was then Dutch, they... wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, it had to be. That's right. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well done there. Um, it was um, it, it, so that that blocked it up, and then they they put some sticky tape or something over it. They, they <laughs> sealed it up fairly effectively. A multi-billion-dollar spacecraft, and they've gone to the stationary store to fix it. <laughs> yeah, you, a bit of gaffer tape or something like that. <laughs> oh, that's but, good stuff. Well, that it is, is good stuff. all the time in the world of astronomy, but yeah. we're not, you know, relying on it to let us breathe. So I suppose because we don't know how it happened, we don't know when it happened. So we we don't know how long the hole existed. That's that's correct. Um, the, there is a comment that's been made by one of the uh, Russian, um, you know, uh, VIPs who's. Uh, who's had experience uh, in space um, 
He is, his name is Alexander Zelenyakov. I hope that's his correct pronunciation. He's a former space industry engineer and author. And he um, told the news agency, the TASS news agency in Russia, that drilling the hole in zero gravity would be nearly impossible in that part of the spacecraft. Ah. Uh, and that, that, yes, you know, that's a, a good suggestion. But of course, everybody questions why the cosmonauts would do it. There has been a theory advanced that um, a cosmonaut might do this because uh, it was... Uh, uh, because he or she was psychologically disturbed uh, and wanted to force an early, you know, an early transfer back to back to Earth, but that's not the best way to do that. I mean, I think if you were really in trouble, you would you would fess up to that and and actually have a, um, you know, have a trip back to Earth uh, with with with, uh, with everything uh, well understood and intact rather than drilling a hole in the space station. Yeah, I've, so seen, I've seen NASA's actually published uh, photographs of, uh, yeah. of the hole on Twitter and probably other social media platforms. It, it is clearly a drill hole. It is, That's um, right. There's no <laughs> denying it. And I can see the scorch marks that you mentioned where the drill has slipped. So yeah. whoever drilled it intended to drill it Yep. Um, there's no sort of indication that it could have been a sort of a punch through from another surface that accidentally drilled through. That's that's correct. So that's um, one wonders why. Uh, maybe it was a, uh, just a mistake. They they didn't you know they drilled the hole thinking something was going to be put there and ended up not happening. Or who knows? It's yeah, it's a mystery. Yeah, putting a coat hooker in or something like that. Yeah. You know? No, I think um, I think the, <laughs> the coat the, hanger uh, would work well on the ISS. It would on the ISS. That's right. Um, I, yeah, a mistake is certainly a possibility. And maybe you know, if somebody had made a mistake and they were just too scared to fess up to it and then blocked it up <clears throat> the, as best they could, and then it's come away, uh, that might be the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, a really interesting story. I hope we can bring our listeners more news about it in forthcoming episodes. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's blue tack around it. No, it couldn't be. <laughs> um, but, yeah, fascinating. It's not the first time mistakes, assuming it's a mistake, have happened in the space race, like Apollo 13. That was a mistake with uh, oxygen cylinders. Uh, they had an, uh, a mistake on Apollo 1, which never actually got off the ground because of the fire in the capsule. Yeah, that was, that was terrible. Just, <laughs> just engineering errors, basically, that, yeah. that surfaced at very you know, horrible times in the case of Apollo 1 and Apollo 13. And this, this you don't know what this could have led to. Thankfully, they found it and, you know, um, they've, they've gone down to the stationery store and <laughs> sorted it all out. Uh, I have another theory, though, Fred. Yeah, I, I think they were getting bored and they were probably playing pin the tail on the donkey. I, I suspect <laughs> that could have been an issue. Mm. Yes, well, I'll leave that one where it is because... <laughs> yes, we don't want to be an ass, to, do we? It Not really. turns out to be that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> no, and we'll keep, we'll keep an eye on this. There might be more information on this to come. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I 
particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more, and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Roger, you're live, sir, here also. Space nuts. Now, Fred, from um, Russia with love to Japan, and the Japanese have uh, set a date for touchdown on asteroid 162173 Ryugu, um, which is probably incorrectly pronounced, but, um, yeah, they're getting pretty excited. This is a, a space rock of about one kilometre in width. That's, uh, that's a pretty chunky piece of... Um, of metal and stone, I imagine. It, it is. Uh, look, it's a it's an asteroid mission, uh, which I think is very exciting. As you say, it's about a kilometer wide, uh, two thirds of a mile. It's um, it's uh, being visited by a spacecraft called Hayabusa two, and Hayabusa one really made history in the early two thousands because that visited uh, another asteroid. Um, and uh, actually had a, an epic tale of, of things going wrong and uh, things basically coming good. Uh, Hayabusa 1 visited an asteroid called uh, Itokawa, which uh, it rendezvoused with in 2005 after a two-year journey. Um, and the idea was that it was going to collect a sample of the asteroid and bring it back to Earth, and it had the most astonishing series of mishaps. It's uh, as I, far as I remember, it went into a very strange orbit and wound up going past Venus a couple of times. <laughs> but in fact, it got back in 2010 with a small sample of material from the asteroid. Yes, so they, it was a you know a successful yeah, mission in the end. Remarkable. Yeah, the worst of all, it brought back Pikachu. <laughs> yes, that's right. Probably did. Mm. Um, but uh, so this is the second version of this, and it's visiting uh, a, a different asteroid, of course, uh, exactly as you've said, one six two one seven three Ryugu. We, it's an interesting sort of asteroid. I think it's basically thought to be 
a sample of the raw material that made up the solar system. So it's one which we could potentially learn a lot about the early history of the solar system by studying. And so there is a plan to bring back a sample from this as well. However, um, it's, uh, it, the, the, the mission itself has much more scope to it. There's all kinds of things going to happen uh, within the next few months. So the spacecraft has been uh, in orbit um, around the asteroid since June this year. It took about three and a half years to get there. Uh, and what is now planned, uh, and, and the reason why this is in the news, Andrew, is because the, 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 the mission profile has now been, uh, been released. Um, in Later this month, later in September, on the 21st, it's going to launch... Uh, a little, as far as I can work out, it's about the size of a suitcase. It might be smaller, actually. It's only 3.3 kilograms. A little container uh, which will um, basically be deployed uh, and will have two little robots on board, uh, each of which weighs a kilogram. It's not big stuff, isn't this? It's the size of a packet of sugar or something like that. Mm. Uh, these two robots have got very profound names. They're called Rover 1A and Rover 1B. Um, and they move across the surface of the asteroid actually by hopping uh, because they've got the, it's the sort, of, um, the sort of thing that's inside your mobile phone. It's, uh, as far as I can work out, it's a, it's a mass that it rotates and basically sets up a vibration and this just propels the robot over the surface. So it kind of bounces across the surface. Wow. And so these two little rovers, um, which will be deployed from the Minerva 2-1 package, uh, uh, as I said, on the 21st of September, uh, basically have lots of, um, you know, uh, uh, imaging equipment on board. They've got wide angle and stereo cameras on board, uh, which will send back pictures, obviously, via the um via the spacecraft itself. And then uh, next month, early in October, uh, there is another lander, which is called Mascot, uh, and that's a joint German-French uh, um, entity. That will, uh, actually, Mascot's a kind of uh, acronym for mobile, mobile Asteroid Surface Scout. There you go. It's quite, quite a nice one. That's a big one. That weighs 10 kilograms. And that will essentially land on the surface uh, and has wide-angle camera, microscope, radiometers for temperature, uh, things for measuring magnetic field, all that kind of stuff that you expect from, you know, from a scientific package landed on, a, on an asteroid. Um, that also is going to explore the surface. Um, one of the things that is really interesting about this asteroid is that it, it is covered in boulders. Uh, and there's a particularly big one near the near the south pole of uh, of Ryugu. Uh, I don't think they're going to go anywhere near that. I think the idea is to stay away from things that um, that could you know damage the landers. Um, but then, once the uh, once all that has happened um, with these two landers that will deploy on the surface, there is a third one, <clears throat> and that um, in fact is going to. Um, detonate a small explosive charge to lift material from beneath the surface of the asteroid that will be sampled by the spacecraft Hayabusa 2, which will descend into the crater that's formed and collect the stuff that's there, which is um, the idea being that you, you're looking at a sample to bring back to Earth 
that has not been irradiated by you know several billion years of cosmic rays and things of that sort and that uh, will uh, so that the spacecraft will leave uh, the vicinity of Ryugu uh, in actually not this year but next year in December 2019 and uh, come back to earth about a year later so uh, amazing stuff. Oh, it's this very is, ambitious by the sound of it, Fred. Yeah, exactly. That's the word I was just about to use. It is very, very ambitious. And, um, you know, they've, they've already tried it once and met with partial success. Uh, JAXA, the Japanese uh, um, space agency, uh, have got some very clever tricks up their sleeve, and I think this is one well worth watching. So the basis of the mission is to go and see what they can see. More or less, that's right. You, you equip with, with every possible you know, means of finding out as much as you can, and, and the icing on the cake is bringing bits of stuff back. Mm. Uh, and, of course, that will be subject to all the normal rules of, of sample return, which is that it, it's uh, in, a, in an isolated environment. It's not released into the atmosphere or anything like that. It's all properly protected, just in case there's some bugs lurking. And, of the course, it, uh, it just sort of demonstrates hu humanity to a T. We've spent three and a half years travelling this, to this thing so we can blow a hole in blow it. Blow a hole in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're pretty good at putting holes in things. Yeah, we, are. we are. And, and leaving stuff all over the place. But, uh, look, you said that this was sort of a leftover from the creation of the solar system. Um, we shouldn't be surprised because builders never clean up after themselves. <laughs> Quite so. And just leave fine. junk all over the place. I've built a few homes over the years. I have. I tried to dig a garden out once to uh, to plant a, you know, about the fifth tree in that spot because they kept dying. And when I dug a bit deeper, I found, you know, aluminium cans and bottles and roof tiles and blue metal gravel. No wonder nothing would grow. Oh, there you go. Typical. You, you, you needed the Japanese space agency. They'll I clear do. up. I do. I should have yeah. just blown it up. <laughs> mm. All right, but, uh, so that'll be exciting. We'll probably talk more about that down the track because, uh, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what they find. I'm sure we will. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here. And, of course, Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, a question from our vast nutty audience. Uh, and I might add uh, next week's episode will be episode 120, and we think we might dedicate the whole show to questions because we've got quite a backlog and Fred's been asking everybody the answers so he can do the segment for us. So um, we, we'll try and answer uh, as many as we can next week. But we'll, we'll tackle one right now from Neil McKenzie, Fred, who um, writes as a follow-up, which seems to be a pretty common thread these days, a follow-up to something we've previously discussed. I have a question following on from your item of August 16. Could have been any other date because, you know, you don't know when people have listened. But uh, he listened on August 16 about the Perseid meteor shower. So if the shower is caused by debris from comet Swift-Tuttle and it orbits the sun every 130 years, why do we see the Perseids every year? Do all meteor showers come from comets? And do they only appear annually and regularly? Or can they be intermittent or even one-offs? Interesting. I, I think I know half the answer to this question, but I'm going to defer to the expert. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, no pressure, of course, but thank you very much. So um, the answer is uh, yes. <laughs> the, 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 Neil's question is a good one, um, and I understand where he comes from. So this is 
you know, just to, to, to provide the big picture. Meteor showers are occurrences which happen regularly throughout the year where we see shooting stars or meteors, all of which appear to come from a single point in the sky, uh, which we call the radiant. And, and it's always named after the constellation in which uh, the, the, you know, the, um, the, the, that, that point is, usually with the, the letters ID stuck on the end of it. So the Perseids uh, are a shower of meteors uh, in August that come from the constellation of Perseus or appear to, which is actually a Northern Hemisphere constellation. So they're not that good here in the South. But um, we now understand that the, the reason why these meteors all appear to come from a single point is because of you, you've got um, essentially things entering the Earth's atmosphere on parallel tracks. It means they're all coming from the same direction. Uh, and it's just the perspective that makes them look as though they're issuing from a single point. Mm -hmm. So parallel tracks of meteors through the atmosphere, and that tells you that you, the Earth is intercepting a body of uh, little dusty objects that are all traveling in the same direction and effectively at the same speed. Um, and that's how we interpret uh, the origin of meteor showers. So what's happening is the Earth is going through an enhanced cloud of dust in its orbit. Um, and we are understanding now, and this comes from the direction in which these meteors appear to come. You can essentially tell something about the orbit of the dust particles themselves around the sun. And it's that that leads us to associate them with comets, because uh, when the orbit of the dust particles matches the orbit of the comet, then you know you're on the right track. But Neil's question is a good one, because uh, Comet Swift-Tuttle, which is still you know, visible in the sky from time to time, it goes around the sun uh, in, in about 130 years. So why do we see the Perseids every year? And the answer is that that comet has been in that orbit for a long time and it has left a trail of dust behind it. So that trail of dust really spreads uh, around the whole of the 130-year orbit of Comet Swift-Tuttle. That's the one that, that actually left the debris. Um, and that's, that's true of all, uh, of all meteor showers. Now, the, there are times when you're going through the orbit of a comet not very long after the comet itself has gone through. And that's where you find an enhancement of the dust. In other words, you're going to get a better meteor shower. Because the mess you're... is more concentrated. Right? Exactly, because there's, the debris is, is not very far. You know, the, the, a lot of that debris is going with the comet. It's not far behind it. Mm. Um, so there is an enhancement when you're near the time of the comet. But you do see them all the time because the, 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 the orbit itself is very dusty. Um, the other parts of... Uh, of uh, Neil's question, uh, do all meteor showers come from comets? As far as we know, they do. Uh, do they only appear annual, annually and regularly? And once again, they do because of the, the, the fact that you're, you're going through a part of the Earth's orbit that intersects the, the orbit of the comet. So it's, it's a, an annual occurrence. Yeah, because we rotate um, around. We, we orbit the sun once a year and therefore yeah. we, we reach that point where the junk Same. is once a year. That's once a year, that's exactly right. Um, we don't know of uh, so. <clears throat> uh, Neil asks about you know intermittent ones or or even one-offs. Um, 
to, to the best of my knowledge, there's never been an episode, although, you know, knowing, knowing the way the history of astronomy goes, I'm sure I'll be proved wrong, where there's just been a meteor shower that's just come from nowhere and that has happened once and then gone away. Um, we, we do, of course, see um, meteors all the time, not ones that are in showers. They're called sporadic meteors. These are just bits of dust that are lurking in the in the plane of the Earth's orbit. Um, there's a lot of it. There's something like 50 tons of meteoritic dust come to Earth every day. So uh, it's, a, it's a fairly heavy burden of stuff that's entering the Earth's atmosphere. Of course, it all burns up uh, up there in the atmosphere. Um, so, but the, the difference between those sporadic meteors and meteors in the shower is that you don't get this effect of the meteors all seeming to come from a single point. Uh, they they uh, they come from anywhere in the sky. You know, you just see them charging across the sky in random directions. Um, so that's the normal occurrence of meteors. In fact, that's you know, if you go out on every any average night and and sit for half an hour, you, you're almost certain to see at least one and sometimes quite a number. Mm. But unless they all come from the same point in the sky, they're not part of a meteor shower. They're the sporadics. Well, as we mentioned when we were talking about. Um asteroids uh, flying about it, it, there's a lot of junk out there the universe is a pretty filthy place and so it stands to reason that there's going to be occasional wisps of something hitting the atmosphere so uh, how much did you say per day 50 tons 50 tons yeah yeah it's a lot it is yeah. a lot a lot of yeah. dust that's right. Mm. That's uh, you know you think it's dusty in your spare room, but uh, now, I've got to preempt a question, and I know you've answered this before, but it might come up. Uh, you say when these uh, pieces of dust burn up, um, they they you know they get completely destroyed, but they've yeah. got to turn into something. So what do they become, and where do they end up? So yes, yeah, so they they, they vaporise and they basically end up as as constituents of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, so uh, the, the 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 dust itself is mostly silicates. Uh, some sometimes there's iron in there as well. Um, it, it, it basically uh, oxidizes, so you get you know you, you get uh, the, the 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 products of the burning, which become part of the atmosphere. Um, the the reason why they burn up so quickly is because of their incoming speed. I think the fastest ones, I can't remember whether it's the Leonids or the Geminids. Uh, both of which are coming up later in the year, by the way. Um, uh, uh, the fastest ones hit the atmosphere at 72 kilometres per second. And so, you know, that's that's a pretty high speed. And they burn up usually around about 90 kilometres high. If you've got a big one, then it'll burn up a bit lower. And one that's big enough to come down to the Earth is, of course, a meteorite. Mm. Uh, most of these meteor showers are fairly small particles of dust. They're not terribly big objects. Um, just... One footnote to this, Andrew, is that the next uh, the next bright meteor shower uh, in our calendar is actually next month, uh, towards the end of October, peaking round about the 21st or 22nd of October, uh, and that is the Orionids, which of course seem to come from the constellation of Orion. Uh, now the Orionids, because Orion sits right on the equator, uh, the celestial equator, it means it can be seen either from the northern hemisphere or the, the southern hemisphere. So there's no preference with the Orionids. Uh, but they, the Orionid meteors are actually debris from, well, the most famous comet of all, probably. Com comet Halley, that's right. Ah. So, wow. 
Okay, yeah. so that's something to look out for uh, later next month. And uh, how long does that one usually last? How long does it usually take to pass through this? It's quite a it's quite a long period. Um, in fact, more or less the whole of October, we're going through a, a, a sort of fairly, um, you know, fairly broad uh, dust cloud, uh, which is left behind by Comet Halley. Um, but the peak, where you, when, you, when you're in the core of the dust cloud, the peak is, is round about the 21st, 22nd of October. Mm, looking at the weather, it's going to be globally overcast for the entire month. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, it's uh, it's first quarter moon, I think, as well. So it's it's actually quite good to see. I think yeah. No, it's fun to just sit out the back and look up for a while and just take it all in. I just happened to be farewelling my son, who uh, was around for dinner the other night, and we looked up and we both saw uh, Mars, and yep. then we just spotted something floating past it. Um, so obviously a satellite or the ISS or something like that passing by. So uh, quite quite brightly in the sky. Mm. Well, the, the ISS is unmistakable because it is so bright. It yeah, would I'd say that's up. what it was because it sort yeah, of st stuck out. Yeah, It's fascinating. And thank you, Neil, for your question. We really do appreciate it. Next week we'll try and tackle uh, quite a few questions in episode 120 of Space Nuts. Fred, thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk as always, and we'll speak next week. And we got through it without the sound of a hammer drill, which I'm really <laughs> thrilled about. <laughs> Catch you next time, Fred. Sounds great. See you soon. Bye-bye. Fred Watson, astronomer, talks to us every week here on Space Nuts, and we thank you for joining us every week. Don't forget to tell your friends and say hi to your mum for me. I'll catch you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.